Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist, a medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. So as you know, we are now in the new podcast, Same Old Host, Healthcare Unfiltered. I have explained to you previously why I started this new podcast, and I continue to welcome any comments or feedback from you. But today is really a treat. I have three phenomenal, phenomenal GU oncologists on the same episode to talk all things GU oncology. What are really the most important data or important papers or abstracts that were presented, published over the past several months that have had clinical impact on the way patients with GU cancers are treated? Prostate cancer, urothelial cancer, and kidney cancer. I have the honor and pleasure of having Dr. Rana McKay from UCSD, Dr. Petros Grievous from University of Washington in Seattle, and the mayor of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the mayor himself, Tony Schwery from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. The plan on today's episode is to really for each one of the guests to share one or two papers or abstracts in kidney or urothelial or prostate, but for the other two to provide critical appraisal for that particular paper and to try to play a contrarian on the paper that is being presented. We all know, and I've said that many, many, many times before, there are no perfect clinical trial. You can always critique any clinical trial, but I think we owe it to our patients to deliver the best quality of care despite imperfect science, despite imperfect clinical trials. We will also share with you the, you know, I mean, how long sometimes some of these clinical trials will take from, uh, you know, inception until execution, publication, enrollment, and so forth. So really, I think now that we are past the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the European Society of Medical Oncology, it's fitting and appropriate to sit down and talk about all things GU oncology with three phenomenal investigators only on Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. And before I run this episode, I hope that you have had a chance to check us out on all podcast outlets, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, pretty much everywhere you can find the podcast. I also hope that you have been able to refer a friend or a colleague to the podcast, rate the podcast, and write a brief review. Without further ado, Tony, Rana, and Petros on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. All right, everyone, where I'm really, first of all, I'm a starstruck today uh, in taping this GU roundtable on the Healthcare Unfiltered. I have three phenomenal uh, GU investigators who are, I would say, movers and shakers in the world of GU. And I'm really pleased to discuss pretty much, I would say, the top influencing abstracts, papers, data points that have been presented or shared with the physicians and the lay public over the past few months uh, in urothelial, prostate, and kidney cancer. Uh, We're going to do a very, very quick introduction, because if we're going to spend time with introductions, I mean, we'll we'll spend the whole podcast uh, reviewing the accomplishments of uh, all of these uh, top three docs. Rana, we'll start with you, uh, just uh, briefly where you are and where you practice and what do you focus on? Great. So, uh, Raina McKay, I'm a medical oncologist at the University of California, San Diego. Um, I lead our genitourinary oncology group here and mainly um, see patients with genitourinary malignancies with a focus on uh, kidney cancer and prostate cancer. Thanks for having us today. Great. Petros? 
Hello, Tali. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be here with you, Reina and Tony. I'm Petrus Grivas. I'm a medical oncologist at Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. I'm an associate professor at the University of Washington and Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. I'm also the clinical director of the Gentle Urinary Cancers Program here at the University of Washington and um, doing a lot of clinical research focusing on gentle urinary cancers with a primary interest in urothelial cancer. Thanks again for having me. Tony, you have the, uh, uh, some, somebody called you the mayor of ASCO. So first of all, <laughs> tell us about you and how did you get this? Uh, how did you get that? I don't know if that's good or bad, but ASCO's good, I can tell you. So I, I'm a medical oncologist focused on GU cancers at Dana-Farber in Boston and at Harvard Medical School. And I'm the director of the Lang Center for GU Oncology. We have over 20 GU oncologists focused only and exclusively on GU oncology clinical care, clinical research, translational and basic uh, science. You know, I uh, treat all uh, GU cancers, but my focus of research uh, past five, 10 years has been on uh, kidney cancer. And, you know, many proud people uh, came out of our program, like Dr. McKay, now, as you know, at UCSD, and Dr. Grivas, uh, who is at large mentee on the other side of the coast. And Tony, I think uh, I've been a little bit disappointed you're slowing down because over the past two weeks, I didn't see any paper you published. So I'd like you to crack things up a little bit. I think uh, you're being distracted with uh, soccer. Okay. <laughs> so the, the way I thought we'll, we'll do this, we're going to, you know, we can't cover everything, but clearly there are some abstracts that came at, at, after ESMO and some of the papers that came out that, that have more clinical influence or, or, or affect clinical practice more than others. I'm going to rely on you for that because we'd like to focus on these abstracts or papers that have direct clinical uh, implications or very close to having direct clinical implications, you know, because that's really what's critical, at least for the time being. And then we'll bring you back in six to eight months and we'll talk about new stuff. So, Rana, let's talk about prostate a little bit. Let's start with you. What, what would you select as a paper or abstract that have clinical uh, implication? So oh, one of the studies that I think is just a landmark trial in prostate cancer is the PROFOUND trial and updated data um, of the final OS outcomes were presented at ESMO. And this is the reason this is groundbreaking in prostate is because this is the first molecularly targeted therapy that is approved for this disease. And what it's going to do is really herald us into a new um, era in prostate cancer where we are going to be integrating more genomic profiling of patients with advanced disease and trying to develop biomarker specific strategies for this disease, which we have previously never done. And so this really is groundbreaking work. And PROFOUND is just one of multiple studies that have demonstrated the efficacy of PARP inhibitors in advanced prostate cancer. The design of this trial, it was a randomized phase three study. It was open label with a primary endpoint of uh, radiographic progression-free survival. Patients were randomized two to one to receive elaborate or control. The control arm included either um, enzalutamide or abiraterone, basically the agent that they may not have previously received because this trial was enrolling patients who had received prior Enza or Abby. And patients were allowed to cross over to elaborate upon radiographic progression. They did have a pre-specified key secondary endpoint of overall survival, primarily in cohort A. The way that the trial was designed is that cohort A was particularly looking at BRCA1, 2, and ATM, while cohort B was looking at the overall patient population, including those that are BRCA1, 2, ATM, and then the other 12 other genes that were included in the sample set. And the trial was strikingly positive for overall survival. At the data cutoff in the middle, in the summer, I'm sorry, in the spring, the median final overall survival in cohort A was significantly longer with the laparib treated patients compared to physician choice enzalutamide or abiraterone with a hazard ratio of 0.69, you know, which was statistically significant. That was for cohort A with a trend for overall survival um, improvement in the overall population. So, um, you know, this really is a landmark trial in this disease. It is not uncommon in prostate cancer for patients to receive sequential AR targeting agents 
we are learning more about sequencing strategies. And within the last year, we recently saw the data from the CARD trial that were presented, which were not out at the time that this trial was designed, you know, highlighting that for patients who have rapid progression on an AR targeting agent, whether it be abiraterone or enzalutamide within 12 months of initiating um, treatment, they progress on that agent, that switching mechanism to chemotherapy um, makes more sense for those individuals. That was just recently reported, like not present at the time that, you know, Profound was designed. And it's not uncommon practice for patients to go from one drug to the other. But now what we're learning is that switch mechanism makes sense. Switching to a PARP if they have an AR targeting eight, if they have an HRD alteration, or if they have rapid progression switching to chemotherapy. So this, this is really groundbreaking work. Maybe to Tony and Petros, um, I mean, there are some, some of the critiques that came to this paper is what Rana alluded to is that, you know, if you progress on enzalutamide, you should not receive abiraterone. If you progress on abiraterone, you should not receive enzalutamide. So, uh, but this trial allowed that, and that's one of the critiques. And, and the other critique was that there was a subset of these patients that progressed on both, and they still uh, received. So what are your thoughts on this? Is this what happened in real life? How do we counter that criticism? Tony, you want to go first? I, I think the question is, what is better there as a control arm and what would you have done in practice? And I think in practice, you know, we, we moved at the time. You have to remember that this may not apply to today, but at the time that the study was open in practice, people uh, switch between uh, abiraterone and, and zalutamide. So that is, you know, what happens in practice. So I can, I can get that. There aren't still significant and many options in castration-resistant prostate cancer. And I think it is reasonable, definitely. It speaks more so to the absence and to the limited options that the patient do have once you have progression, let's say, on uh, vaccine-based chemotherapy and then on uh, one AR antagonist. Petros, what do you think? These are great points made by Rana and you, Tony. I think overall, uh, I understand the critique in the study, yes, uh, based on the CARD trial that uh, we have seen recently, a taxane uh, single-agent chemotherapy seems to perform better after progression in one antiandrogen. So yes, in theory, it would be nice to have a control arm that has a taxane uh, regimen versus another antiandrogen. Uh, that would be the optimal idea. Having said that, we all have patients in the clinic who cannot get a taxane chemotherapy, despite this being a relatively well-tolerated treatment, uh, even in elderly patients. Some of the patients are frail. Uh, they have poor performance status, poor physiologic reserve, uh, and uh, significant neuropathy, So, uh, and, and may have no significant symptoms. So they may not uh, necessarily require uh, the uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy uh, in that setting because, you know, they, they don't have significant symptomatic burden, they have significant risk of toxicity. So I think it's a significant amount in our clinical practice outside the field of clinical trials, second line antiandrogen, despite not being the, you know, you know, standard of care uh, at this point, uh, there are many patients who still get it and maybe the standard of care for those patients. This subset of patients who cannot tolerate uh, a chemotherapy or, you know, uh, and or, you know, refuse it, uh, especially if they don't have symptoms. So I think there's a proportion of patients where a second line antiandrogen still might be an option. Uh, in that context, uh, for those patients, the control arm is appropriate. Again, it's a subset of patients. At the same time, you know, as Reina mentioned, this is the, the first trial probably that is utilizing a precision oncology approach. And even with a, a, a critique in the control arm, is a very important trial. It is practice changing. And uh, I think uh, uh, represents that PARP inhibitors can be used and should be used, uh, in my opinion, in a proportion of patients with uh, uh, selected genomic mutations. Uh, I think the biggest question in my mind is, uh, is there a kind of a broad approval of 15 gene mutations you know, appropriate or not? Uh, that's a broader discussion. I don't think there is a right answer here clearly. However, the benefit appears to be driven mainly by BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. The other 13 genes do not appear to have a clear benefit. 
However, uh, you know, when uh, you're in the clinic with a patient and you run out of options, uh, especially in the later lines after taxane chemotherapy, I think it's reasonable to have a discussion with the patient and have a certain informed decision making and consider PARP inhibitors even with the other 13 gene mutations. But for BRCA1 and BRCA2, I think there is a clear benefit. And I think uh, uh, Olapari, based on the profound study with uh, phase three trial data, and Rucapari, based on the Triton phase two trial, represent uh, a revolution in the field of prostate cancer with PARP inhibitors uh, being an option for uh, selected patients. So, Rana, maybe back to you before we move to uh, maybe an abstract in urothelial or paper in urothelial. How did this affect maybe what you would do right now when you're faced with a CRPC patient that comes to a clinic? Are you sequencing everyone to check for these mutations? Uh, are you sequencing select ones? And maybe as you answer this question, can you allude whether you believe the PARP inhibitors are interchangeable or do you think Olaparib, like, do you think this is a class effect or there's something that makes you think that one PARP inhibitor may work differently than another? Thank you. All great questions. So I will add also, remember, the profound trial did allow crossover at progression. And it's interesting that over 60% of patients in the control arm crossed over, which most of the time when we have crossover studies, it's not more than 50% that ever cross over and we're still able to see that OS benefit. So I think they kind of make up for default in, you know, the allowing prior Abby and Enza um, by allowing immediate crossover at any time of radiographic progression. So I think that needs to be taken into consideration. I think in the clinic, um, I am sequencing both somatic and germline every man with advanced prostate cancer, because I think in addition to, you know, looking for HRD alterations that are either somatic or germline, I think there are other evolving targets, for example, that clinical trials are being conducted in like CDK12 altered um, uh, prostate cancer. There's specific trials for neuroendocrine um, alterations. So I think that, I think where the field is going now is every single patient who has advanced prostate cancer needs to undergo genomic profiling. And I think that opens up an entire kind of opportunity to one, educate around that. And there's a lot of variability regarding the different kinds of tests and the assays and which assay covers all the right genes and the germline testing, who does it, you know, how to integrate genetic counseling. So I think that this is a whole new kind of opportunity that we've, you know, new, new uh, uh, issues that have sort of come up. And, you know, a lot of, some men with prostate cancer still are followed by urologists, not necessarily medical oncologists. And so um, I think with this comes a lot of education around testing and how to do it so that it can benefit the patient. Petrus, let's uh, move a little bit. Let's do a, a urothelial one. And um, I'm going to have a request uh, since I'm the moderator. I'd like you to start with Javelin because I think it's, uh, let's uh, talk about it a little bit. And uh, we'll do a shout out to Monty who sent you some mug with all of these things uh, on it. That's, uh, you know, so this will motivate him to listen to the podcast. So tell us about Javelin. Uh, absolutely. Just to make a very, very quick comment, uh, just echoing what Raina just said, it's very important for patients with prostate cancer to undergo germline and somatic mutation testing, in my opinion, early on. Uh, this can have significant treatment implications for PARP inhibitors that are not out of care in some patients, as well as clinical trials, and there are many potential emerging targets uh, like CDK12 and others, as Raina mentioned, you know, let alone the TMB that can be a potential selection for pembrolizumab based on the basket approval many clinical trials and also germline testing can benefit the patient as well as the broader family with cascade testing, prevention screening, and so on and so forth. And now focusing on your great question about Javelin trial. So let's provide some context about the Javelin trial. Uh, and uh, I will start by saying that uh, this is certainly a practice changing phase three study. This is in the first line setting of advanced urothelial cancer. Patients who had already received platinum-based chemotherapy, for example, gemserapine cisplatin or gemserapine carboplatin, and they had response or stable disease to that particular induction chemotherapy, they got randomized to either avelumab, an anti-PDL1 agent plus best supportive care, or best supportive care alone, a switch maintenance strategy, try to maintain or sustain the effects of induction chemotherapy with a less toxic therapy like immunotherapy. Patients were stratified based on the best response to induction chemotherapy, as well as the site of metastasis, visceral or not. The primary point was overall survival in two populations. Number one, in all comers, 
regardless of PD-1 expression, as well as the subset of patients with PD-1 positive tumors, PD-1 was measured based on the Ventana SP263 assay, which is different than the assay that was um, uh, used in the Artizo or Pembro trials, or NIVO trials. Having said that, uh, the primary endpoint of viral survival was met, and in my opinion, there was a statistically and clinically significant difference with a hazard ratio of 0.69, representing a 31% reduction in the risk of death in all comers, regardless of PDL1 expression uh, in overall survival favoring a value map. And the progression-free survival was also corroborating that result in all comers. And similarly, uh, and even more, I would say, uh, pronounced, the benefit with Avelumab was noticed in the subset of patients with PDL1 positive tumors, with a hazard ratio for overall survival 0.56 and a very significant PFS benefit. Uh, if you ask me about PDL1 negative patients, my editorial comment is the hazard ratio was 0.85, so in the same direction with the PDL1 positive and the all comers. Obviously, the PDL1 negative population was an exploratory endpoint, was not a primary endpoint. It was in the same direction as I mentioned. And if you start slicing the data in different ways, you may not necessarily find statistical significant benefit in every single subset. But considering that we do not have a clinically useful biomarker to select our patients, I think the results of Javelin apply to all patients with response or stable disease after platinum-based chemotherapy. And I think any patient, you know, unless they have an active autoimmune disease on steroids and they have a contraindication to begin with immunotherapy, I think Avelumab should be considered standard of care with level one evidence now in the frontline setting switch maintenance design. The safety profile of uh, Avelumab was consistent with what we know about checkpoint inhibitors in advanced solid tumors. There was a 12% treatment discontinuation rate because of treatment emergent adverse events. And there were, uh, if I remember correctly, only a 7% grade three treatment-related adverse event rate. Overall, a very manageable uh, and well-tolerated profile of the drug. And based on the presentation by Professor Powell's at ASCO virtual meeting, subsequently followed by the great discussion by Dr. Plimak and also Dr. Chueri did a great job with the ASCO highlights in GU. The uh, FDA a month later approved Avelumab as its maintenance therapy in advanced urothelial cancer after response to stable disease to induction platinum-based chemotherapy and subsequently the guidelines, the ESMO and CCN guidelines changed in the beginning of July. So this represents a standard of care. And as you mentioned, now the manuscript is out at the New England Journal of Medicine as of September 18, 2020. Congratulations on the paper, uh, Petrus. You're a senior author uh, on that. So really, congratulations. Well done. Tony, put on your critical hat uh, on the paper and uh, your thoughts on this, but more importantly, similar to the PARP inhibitor question that I asked, because there were some, so many studies with, um, you know, PD-1 inhibitors, PD-L1 inhibitors in neurothelial cancer, and the, the outcomes were not always consistent. Is there something specific with Avilumab? And then when you look at the Javelin uh, paper, some might say, if you're still responding to chemotherapy, there is no reason to switch it. You can continue chemotherapy versus switching. What, what are your thoughts on the paper that Petrus just discussed? Yeah, I mean, you know, I want to put my critical hat knowing that, you know, critical is, doesn't mean always negative. I would say, you know, I think the jury is out there. There is, this is how today we have to treat metastatic urothelial cancer, starting by chemotherapy. And if you do not have progression after four, six cycles, switch to available maintenance. Uh, now, why is that? Not only is the OS benefit of over six months, but there's a uniform OS benefit across all subgroups with a hazard ratio less than one. There is robustness because PFS and response rate were also met. And the drug is tolerated. There is tolerability, I believe, around 11 12% discontinuation due AE. And why I'm saying this? I'm saying this because, and, and you know, during also ESMO, uh, we've seen um, the trial, two trial, IO, IO, Frontline with termilumumab uh, and durvalumab, and we've saw we've seen another keynote bladder study, 361, I believe, which is pembrochemo versus um, uh, chemotherapy. So trying to give the uh, you know IO chemo or IOIO in all comers in bladder cancer patient urethelial cancer. These studies have not met their primary endpoint, so which makes even javelin more 
uh, important. Now, a few things here that I highlighted in my ASCO highlights of the day around the study is that the study exclude patient with PD 10 to 15% as best response. So the one that have CRPR and SD are primed for better outcome. But, you know, that's, that's, you know, as much as it's a criticism at the end of the day, as much as it's strength, because maybe these are the patients that should have checkpoint inhibitor. And, you know, if you find a way to sequence the treatment well, that's a win, that is nothing negative about that. The second, I would say, point, which I think you would agree with me, everyone here is a fair point, that the treatment with avilumab is continued uh, until unacceptable toxicity, withdrawal, or progression. So the question here, with a shorter duration of avilumab, especially if patients have had CR or DPR, would be okay. Would six months or one year or two years be okay, especially we're discussing values and cost of care? This has not been answered. The, the third point I would make is if you start looking into hazard ratio, and, and I, I do not like to look into that, but you asked me to be critical. There could be a signal that PDL1 negative, now don't get me wrong, all the hazard ratios are less than one, but if you look at the patient that are PDL1 positive versus negative, and you look at the overall survival hazard ratio, it's more pronounced on PDL1 positive patient. That could mean, it doesn't mean that PDL1 negative patient should not receive therapy, but could be in the future when we think about biomarker-based study that PDL1 negative patient, maybe should, they should have intensified therapy here with avilumab and um, another drug. And then finally, when you look at, and that shouldn't come maybe at a surprise, also at the hazard ratio between visceral and non-visceral metastases. A patient with visceral metastases, the OS hazard ratio was 0.8 compared to 0.5 with non-visceral metastases. Of course, patients with visceral metastases from urothelial cancer are harder to treat. Their prognosis is usually uh, worse. But again, that's room to have intensified therapies in the future on top of avilumab that perhaps should be tailored to patients with visceral um, metastasis. So th this, is, this is my take on Javelin. Nevertheless, I think this is a huge win for bladder cancer. It's a huge win because it seems to be the right sequence, the right drug for the right patients. Rana, any uh, thoughts about Javelin uh, that you want to share with us? I think Tony was very inclusive, but uh, for your practice, any additional thoughts? I mean, the, the, these, these data were really groundbreaking data. It was really exciting to see this trial be presented. And I think uh, the key points for me that come out of Javelin are, it's all about timing with immunotherapy in urothelial cancer. We've seen multiple negative trials where treatment has been given upfront or adjuvant, minimal disease. And this trial was very beautifully designed and in, again, in the right patient population that received platinum upfront was uh, having stable disease or responding, that that seems to be the sweet spot and timing of uh, immunotherapy sort of in the frontline space. Because, you know, it, it's really all about timing. So that's the first thing. I think the number two thing that really stood out for me from Javelin is that actually chemotherapy remains king in bladder cancer. <laughs> Upfront chemotherapy, whether it be cisplatinum or carboplatinum, should really be the go-to and should be, you know, tried uh, in the clinical setting because that is the standard of care. Um, I think that there's a lot of ways that chemotherapy can be given safely, dose modifications, reductions, and I think not just making a, this patient's not eligible for chemo, let me just give them upfront IO is really maybe not the best strategy for most patients. So I think switching to carbo, dose modifying in patients just to get the chemotherapy in is, is probably the best strategy. And then I think the third thing that really stood out is, well, who are these PD patients that continue to be an unmet need? Um, patients who have primary refractory disease to platinum chemotherapy, I think are um, a huge area of you know, opportunity for investigation and exploring you know, novel treatment options for these patients. You know, I'd love to see the breakout of what percentage of those patients are actually PDL1 positive versus PDL1 negative. And 
you know, to think about what's the appropriate strategy for them. But landmark study, clearly practice changing, and kudos to Petros and the entire um, Javelin team for just uh, this magnanimous effort. No other trial is, you know, there's lots of other competing trials for everything else we do. There's no other competing trial in this space. It's, it's pretty impressive. Petros, when did you guys start designing the trial? Were you in high school? <laughs> Thank you. First of all, I think uh, Tony and uh, Rana did a great job uh, outlining uh, different aspects of the study. Uh, the reality is, uh, Chadi, uh, when I was still in fellowship uh, about 10 years ago, um, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Maha Hussein, one of my main mentors at the time, on a different switch maintenance trial. At that time, it was sunitinib. Uh, and anti-algiogenic agents in urothelial cancer. This was a flat negative trial in the switch maintenance therapy, exactly the same space. And about the same time, uh, Professor Powell's, he, he was doing a similar study switch maintenance with lapatinib in this maintenance setting. So both of us had a very high interest in this switch maintenance design with the goal to pretty much sustain the benefit achieved with chemo because you cannot give a cannot give chemotherapy forever because of toxicity and because of the short progression-free survival, we thought that maybe a less toxic therapy can keep these patients alive for a longer time. And that was the impetus to do a switch maintenance therapy. And the immunotherapy sounded the perfect uh, selection option there because of the lower toxicity profile, the ability to give it long-term and try to sustain again the benefit with prior chemo. And the other notion was the idea was is immunotherapy working better when you control the disease with prior, quote-unquote, debulking or cytoreductive chemotherapy? And that was the rationale behind the end of the study. The study started in 2015, 2014 or 15, if I remember correctly. And I remember this was my, these were my early days at, uh, at the Cleveland Clinic as assistant professor. So it was uh, exciting to get the style off the ground. And it was quite a journey. Uh, you know, it's hard to, to enroll to maintenance trials for many reasons. You have to capture the patients between four and 10 weeks after the end of chemotherapy. And you have to raise awareness and, you know, make sure we don't lose the patients uh, who finish chemo. Uh, so it was quite a battle to get the, you know, awareness and the, and the belief of the, the notion of maintenance therapy up there. And uh, I think the other additional points were that at the recent ESMO meeting, uh, we did some subset analysis that, you know, uh, Tony uh, made some important comments. Uh, and we tried to do also treatment by subgroup interactions and look at different subsets. And my take home personally, uh, people can comment, is that the benefit appears to be consistent across the board, but with variable degrees or magnitudes of benefit, you know, as Tony mentioned. So uh, significant benefit just with different degrees, but, but I think across the board is what I would do in my clinical practice for all those with stable disease or response. Uh, and the last point is that we did patient report outcomes work uh, and Professor Pauls presented this data at ESMO and Avelumab did not compromise the quality of life of those patients. PROs were consistent in the two groups. And uh, also we have a robust biomarker program and Tony has done very uh, amazing work with uh, the Javelin uh, renal trial in the frontline setting, Avelum Maxidinib. And we looked at similar biomarkers and additional biomarkers in the Javelin Better 100 trial uh, that Dr. Sridhar presented uh, nicely at ESMO. So I think we're going to learn a lot uh, with the biomarker work. Having said that, we advance the field forward, but we still need to do more work to select clinically useful biomarkers. There's a long way to go in the biomarker validation space. And Tony, I mean, this is just amazing, right? I mean, you, you start thinking about the clinical trial between 010, 011, the trial starts in 014, gets reported in 020. I mean, it takes a long time to get these trials from the thought process to the execution, to the reporting, to the enrollment. And clearly there are no perfect studies. Any comments on that? And then probably yeah. on to your kidney, kidney study. Yeah. I think over the years, some folks may not, I would say, grasp, you know, the, the life of a clinical trialist, which we're talking clinical trialist, that's a term probably always existed, but I think people now identify themselves the past five to 10 years. Uh, the sweat and the tears that goes into clinical trials, both investigator-sponsored clinical trial, as well as the partnership with industry that happened from the phase one or from the preclinical aspect to um, you know the phase three that could shift at any uh, movement at any time and this partnership that happened between investigators you know even though if sometimes you know it's in 
investigator, highly academic, you know, study, you still rely on the latest uh, in the field with your industry uh, partners here that have the investigator uh, brochures for the drug update and many other things. So it, it takes it takes a lot of time. It takes a, a I would say a crystal ball to come up with a trial or to think about a trial knowing once the trial stops, it's very hard to change or to move and just, you know, completely go a different track. So it takes a crystal ball to see how the field going to be, what's there at the same time, what's going to come for the trial to be very uh, relevant. Imagine just an example, all the trials that are ongoing now in the adjuvant setting, when one trial is announced as positive and approval and approval is completely and quickly done. Now we know very well that that doesn't happen all the time outside the United States where they may not, patient may not have access to the same treatment a patient in the US have, but it takes a lot. I remember one trial where actually uh, Raina and I, I did, you know, mentor Raina in it. Raina remember it well. Uh, in renal cell cancer, we've been two, three years and we finished writing the protocol, contacting site. I would say two to three years of at least a couple of hours a week on it. And the trial suddenly, because of other trial being announced and partly the sponsors became less interested, rightly so, because of the other trial and the change in standard of care, that trial died. So imagine the time, and I do remember, Raina, how upset you were, and I was kind of smiling, said, this is our life. You know, we have to, sometimes you put a lot of work, a lot of work, and it doesn't pan out. So I think people have to understand that and have to do trials, honestly. They have to go through the path of organizing trial, doing a trial, enrolling patient on trial, leading a trial to know what the trialist goes through. Well said. Well said. Speaking of which, let's talk about uh, one or two trials in the kidney world. And I know that... uh, you had uh, uh, lots of presentations at ESMO. So what do you want to share with us uh, in renal cell? I believe I had one, but it's good you have a lot. But uh, so part of the presidential, actually, uh, we were lucky in the field of GU oncology. Reina and Petros will tell you we had three presidential uh, in GU, two prostate and one kidney. The kidney I was involved in as part of a whole group of investigators, including Dr. Mozart, Dr. Apollo, Dr. Powells, and Escudier, had the honor to present the, at, the, at the plenary uh, session, Checkmate 90R. Checkmate 90R is a combination, experimental combination as of today, of cabozentinib and nivolumab at a reduced dose of cabozentinib from the monotherapy of 60 to 40. And that combination was you know, put against sunitinib standard of care. I think we were quite very happy with the result because all the endpoints for efficacy were met. So PFS was the primary endpoint on independent center review. This was met. Overall survival risk of death was reduced by 40%. Response rate were doubled. So that's one important part and the most important part. The second one is what I call robustness of the trial. I like to see the efficacy endpoint going always in the same direction, no matter what. I like to see very much, and even though they're not primary endpoint, I like to see the investigator assessed endpoint going in the same direction as the independent centrally uh, reviewed endpoint. Robustness is very important. And in this study, same thing, uh, independent center review for PFS and response rate in the same direction as investigator assessment. The third thing I like to see in a trial in a randomized phase three is the subsets, the important subsets. Uh, The one where you think there is some power to look at going also in the same direction and not favoring, you know, a treatment versus the other. So if you look at OS, PFS response rate, and important subgroups such as uh, PDL1, such as the IMDC risk group, such as bone metastasis and other, they all favor the combination. The fourth part I like to look at is uh, tolerability. And when you talk about tolerability, this is an umbrella that has toxicities and has uh, more recently, the past five to 10 years, 
a quality of life, which is the voice of the patient. The patient reported outcome, this is the voice of the patient because a toxicity grading by itself, this is not an ideal system. So what we found here is that, you know, there was toxicity on both arms. The, there was dose reduction with sunitinib and cabozantinib, a bit over 50%. But the treatment discontinuation, the complete treatment discontinuation of cabo and nevo versus sunitinib were similar, both less than 10%. So that was kind of uh, encouraging. There was higher liver function test abnormalities in the uh, cabo-nevo versus sunitinib. Treatment-related deaths were one versus two on each arm. There was also a patient-reported outcome. I'm glad that the study was able, usually, if you remember, patient-reported outcome is usually focused on in the subsequent second or third part of the manuscript. Here of the, of the presentation, you know, a year or two later, here we said no. I think this is very, very important to hear the voice of the patient. And, and, and you know, interesting enough, the quality of life using two questionnaires, knowing that they will be other opportunities to focus completely, hopefully within a presentation, on the patient-reported outcome. Because there are other questionnaires, other metrics um, that we have collected. But in this particular uh, ESMO presentation, we looked at the FKSI 19, so 19 question, and the FKSI DRS, which is a subset, disease-related symptoms, that's a subset of the 19. And um, without any doubt, uh, there was at most, most time point, a statistical dif um, difference favoring actually the combination over uh, sunitinib. So I think that was very important. So the patient lived longer and lived better. So um, this overall for the field, uh, another combination is welcome. How this combination will do, uh, in my mind, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I have moved. I have moved to the next question and the next trial, especially the COSMIC 313, which gives three versus two drugs. So it adds ipilimumab here, and it uses a modern control, nevo-ipi versus nevo-ipi-cabo. This trial, many um, folks, friends, and colleagues are involved with. It's accruing. Another trial is the Alliance study, which Dr. McKay is involved in, led by Dr. Zhang from Duke. Uh, it's a study where patients get nevo-ipi, and then... Uh, they get cabozantinib or they don't based on their response. So it's a, a response-adapted uh, trial. And there are, you know, others. But I believe, you know, every option uh, that coming from a positive study is important for patients. And if, if it's all shoddy about, oh, wow, that adds confusion, I'm okay with that. You know, we will figure out how to handle that confusion. We want positive options for our patients. Petrus, I'll take your comment first, and then because you have to leave, maybe tell me another urothelial thing, and then we'll let you go, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on to, to Rana after that. But any comments on uh, Tony's uh, data? I, I think there's no doubt that this is one of the biggest highlights at ESMO, and uh, overall in kidney cancer, this is a practice-changing study. Uh, the carbonivo versus uh, uh, sunitinib definitely was a positive file in all different metrics, overall survival, PFS, doubling of her overall response rate and patient report outcomes were better. Toxicity profile actually uh, was very granularly presented. I think there's no doubt in my mind that uh, VGFTKI uh, uh, plus immuno-oncology agents, this combination appears to be uh, one of the strongest options in uh, uh, first-line advanced kidney cancer. As Tony mentioned, it's great to have you know, positive trials uh, and then we can figure out, you know, what to use in the clinic. But uh, definitely uh, the study, uh, uh, I think, uh, was very well conducted, designed, and presented. Uh, we definitely want to see uh, this agent uh, being uh, approved in the future and have another option uh, in the armamentarium for the patients. Uh, I think the, the, as Tony mentioned, the details between, you know, different regimens of VGFTKI and anti uh, PD-1, PD-1 agent is, you know, is something that people can figure out in the clinic, but it's fantastic to have these options. And um, uh, this study is indeed practice impacting and practice changing, especially in the favorable risk uh, uh, criteria, you know, ba uh, based on work that Tony and Danny Hank have done. They have stratified the patients based on the uh, Hank criteria, uh, IMDC criteria. The favorable risk group, I think the uh, EP-NEVO combination does not appear to do that well 
compared to sunitinib, at least in terms of the hazard ratios for overall sponsorate uh, and PFS. So I think the combination of you know, uh, VGFTKI and IO is the way to go for um, favorable risk patients. And of course, in, in intermediate and poor risk also, uh, I think carbonivosunitinib was superior uh, across the board. Uh, and I think that's an important take-home message uh, from that study. I really like to see uh, personally uh, that uh, the presentation included all these factors that I mentioned, efficacy, safety, toxicity, and quality of life and points. And these are very important for the patients. Uh, and uh, I really enjoyed the presentation and looking forward to um, seeing uh, the impact in practice and the manuscript. Rana, in 60 seconds, comments on Tony's uh, data because I want to have Petros, uh, before okay. he leaves, talk about an additional urothelial paper. Sure. I mean, this is groundbreaking data. It's another very effective option for our patients. I think this data was, this trial was conducted much later on compared to Checkmate 214 and Keynote 426. More people had their primaries in place, though we're still seeing early on a complete response rate of 8%. I think the fact that there's no uh, detrimental decline in quality of life um, compared to where people are at baseline and actually improvement in the subset scale is huge for patients. I think as now we get to so many different treatment options, it's going to be these nuances that actually in clinical practice, you know, end up being the decision maker regarding what agent is chosen or what regimen is chosen. So this is a huge, um, you know, plus for patients. So I'll, I'll, that's my minute. <laughs> Okay, Petros, uh, oh, by the way, once you have to step out, you will not be able to defend baklava. We're going to talk about that after you leave. But uh, share with us another urothelial uh, paper before we let you go. Uh, I think very briefly, speaking about, you know, uh, advancing urothelial cancer, uh, we were very excited to present the data from the cohort one of the Trophy U01 trial. This was Sarcituzumab govitikan, an antibody drug conjugate single agent in a heavily treated population of patients with multiple prior therapies. Just to give you an example, the median number of prior therapies was three, and the range was between one and eight prior therapies. So heavily treated patients, single agent, Sarcituzumab govitikan, antibody drug conjugate against TROP2, linked to a SN38, a metabolatofirinotecan, a top one inhibitor, induced a 27% response rate in patients who, as I mentioned, were heavily pretreated. The historical response rate was single agent taxane, maybe 10, maybe 15%. Uh, so this is almost a doubling of the response rate uh, and very promising progression of overall survival, obviously in a phase two single arm study, we have to take uh, you know, a grain of salt when we read the carbamate curves of PFS and OS, but definitely set the stage for the phase three tropic 04 trial. I will compare single agent sastuzumogobitikan to single agent axane or vinflunin. And uh, we're very excited about this data. The toxicity is relevant. Uh, we see about 10% of febrile neutropenia. However, with growth factor support and uh, dose reductions, uh, I think we can definitely get the patients through and uh, we can manage the hematological toxicity. And the diarrhea that happened about two-thirds of the patients, uh, it's usually grade one, grade two. I think only 10% was grade three. And usually it's well-managed with education, hydration, and anti-diarrhea medication. So uh, the toxicity profile needs some attention. As I mentioned, fatigue, it's a kind of alopecia and um, um, low appetite in some patients. But overall, is manageable. And I, I think that this study with drug conjugate may potentially represent a new treatment option, especially for patients who have uh, multiple other treatments. And uh, we're looking forward to publish this data, but I want to hear what my colleagues have to say. Rana, any thoughts on this? This is a great, uh, another great advantage for our patients. I think it's great to have new targets. I think one of the biggest things I was actually keen on seeing was actually the toxicity profile. And um, as EV is already on the market and approved for um, patients, sort of what is sort of the toxicity profile, knowing the uh, rash and peripheral neuropathy that come on that can come on with the infortumab. But given that this agent targets trope two, I don't think that the peripheral neuropathy. I mean, there's really minimal peripheral neuropathy that was seen, so I, I don't think that there's cross resistance per se between. EV and um, sacatuzumab. So I'm I'm really excited that this is one another potential therapeutic for patients with advanced disease. And I have to say, given how heavily pretreated this patient population was, response rates of you know close to 30% is actually really exciting for our patients. So um, you know we're excited to roll out the phase three and you know see what happens. 
Tony, any thoughts on the paper that uh, Petros mentioned? You know, I think uh, it remains a smaller study. Definitely the era of antibody drug conjugate is here to stay. In urothelial cancer and many other malignancy, triple never triple negative breast and others. It's here to stay. We have better drugs now that bypassed all the problems we had in the past. I would say specifically to this study in particular, the one thing perhaps on the more so um, criticism side is the duration of response. That was, I believe, around five months. Um, nevertheless, I mean, patients need options in urothelial cancer beside chemotherapy and checkpoint inhibitor and other, you know, an EV, the other antibody drug conjugate. I think also the interesting thing here is, um, which I don't recall if patients who had prior EVs were eligible, but I would love to have very little uh, cross um, reactivity between both. So a patient that respond to EV could respond to uh, SG and vice versa, and a patient that progress could respond to others. Uh, I would think about them like a different chemotherapy uh, target. Will the bone marrow be able to handle that? I don't know, but I welcome always options that have a level of activity. Petros, any final thoughts before we let you go to your other interview? Because you're like a celebrity right now. I had to like book you about three weeks in advance. So, I mean, any other thoughts? I'm following Tony's steps, right? Um, you know, you know, we all strive to be, you know, as famous. So uh, I think that uh, uh, to Tony's point, there is actually a number of patients in the Trophy user one trial that had received prior in form of a dotting and they had at some point progression and uh, they were only in the study. So I think that, uh, and some of them may respond. So I think based on the structure of the molecules, different targets, as uh, uh, Rana mentioned, these are different targets, a form of a targets, nectin-4, Sastuzma uh, targets, TROP2, different linker and different toxin. I do not see conceptually any cross-resistance here. So I think it would be nice, as Tony mentioned, to have options for the patients. And I, I don't anticipate any significant cross-resistance based on the mechanism of action. And then we'll see how the, uh, the landscape will, will shape up um, and look forward for, to present the data, of course, and uh, also um, launch a phase three. Thanks, Petros. I'm just going to have uh, Rana and Tony for a few more minutes for a couple of other abstracts. I know you have a hard stop, so appreciate your time. Rana, we talked about Profound. You have another uh, uh, paper that you wanted to share with us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as Tony had mentioned, the other uh, uh, abstract that was presented in the presidential session at ESMO was the impotential trial uh, by Dr. Johan de Bono. Um, just as a way of background, we know that the PI3 kinase AKT pathway is dysregulated in metastatic CRPC, and we see P10 loss in about 40 to 50 patients, 40 to 50% of patients with metastatic CRPC, which results in activation of AKT. Um, Apatosertive is an um, AKT inhibitor, um, and we know people who, who have P10 loss um, that that's associated with worse outcomes. So this was a phase three randomized double-blinded study evaluating the efficacy and safety of adding hepatosertib to abiraterone in asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients with uh, untreated uh, metastatic CRPC. So this trial was conducted in the first-line CRPC space. Patients with um, metastatic CRPC were randomized one-on-one to receive the combination of hepatosertib plus AVI um, plus PRED versus placebo plus AVI plus PRED. There was a co-primary endpoint of investigator-assessed radiographic progression-free survival by prostate cancer working group three criteria in P10 loss patients, and that was defined by IHC testing, um, not molecular profiling, um, and P10 loss was in greater than 50% of tumor cells. Um, and then the uh, other uh, co-primary endpoint was PFS in the radiographic PFS in the overall intent to treat population. Secondary endpoints included PSA progression, PSA response, objective response um, in both the intent-to-treat populations and the P10 loss um, population. 1,100 patients were enrolled onto the trial um, that were randomized. The median follow-up was 19 months. And in the P10 loss patients by IHC, the trial did meet its primary endpoint. Median radiographic progression free survival was 18.5 months in those patients that received hepatosertib compared to 16.5 months um, in patients that received placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.77. 
in the intent to treat population that included both um, P10 loss and um, you know null patients, um, the RPFS was 19.2 months um, compared to uh, 16.6 months. You know, secondary endpoints appeared to favor the combination. Those uh, adverse events um, that actually uh, serious adverse events were seen in like 40% of patients compared to 23% of patients that just received placebo. And the rates of treatment discontinuation were 21% versus 5% in patients receiving assertive compared to those that did not receive it. So I think this is another, you know, again, we're talking about molecularly driven trials and biomarker trials in prostate cancer. And I think this is where the field is going in prostate cancer. Um, you know, there's been a lot of work that's been done funded through the Prostate Cancer Foundation, Stand Up to Cancer, and other efforts that have really tried to dissect the genomic landscape in advanced disease. And, and by doing that, we're um, unraveling potentially new targets that could be uh, vulnerable to specific agents. And so I think this is you know, another um, uniquely designed trial, um, again, integrating um, biomarkers you know, uh, for patients with advanced disease. Tony, um, comments on this? You, you, you share the same sentiments about biomarker-driven therapy and so forth in prostate? I, I do. I think, uh, you know, the trial, more important, opened the doors to hit that pathway with other trials that could be, with other drugs that could be even better in terms of side effect profile and efficacy. And that's the importance of the potential, you know, study. Well-conceived, I think this is a situation where the lab and the clinic uh, converge in prostate cancer, well thought, and uh, I think that's, you know, the main message uh, of it more than anything else. A randomized phase two that is reproducible in a randomized phase three, I hope we see an overall survival, uh, you know, benefit. So I think uh, these drugs, this class of drugs are here to stay and perhaps, you know, get better um, with other, um, you know, similar uh, drugs, but perhaps more efficacious, more potent, less toxic. So I think that's what the potential uh, study represents more than anything else. So finish us off, uh, Tony, with another uh, kidney cancer uh, paper or abstract that you really, aside from the Checkmate 9ER, that you think may be influential or close enough to clinical practice change or influence. So I think I want to highlight too, there has been many, and I don't want to ex be excluded here, but the one that it jumped to a side is a, another combination with cabozentinib. And why I'm saying that is that, uh, you know, that combination is now in phase three trial is with a PD-L1 inhibitor, uh, atezolizumab, which is not approved in kidney cancer because the frontline atezolizumab study in combination with uh, the VEGF-ligand inhibitor, bevacizumab, you know, did not uh, pan out, unfortunately, a large study. But now, now with uh, atezolizumab being combined with cabozantinib, Dr. Paul presented a uh, early phase one, two, that showed response rate over 50%, tumor shrinkage over 90%. Complementary to that, Dr. McGregor uh, presented uh, data from that combination in non-clear cell RC showing 33% response rate and hard to treat uh, population. And the most important message here is that the combination was uh, side effects were manageable to a degree that this combination is moving to a phase three. The phase three is by the name contact three. It is the combination of cabozantinib, atezolizumab versus standard uh, cabozantinib, but it's in the post-IO setting. That post-IO setting, patients whose tumor progress on PD-1 inhibitor is a complete unmet need. And I think it's very important to ask the questions if we switch upon progression uh, immune checkpoint blocker. And when I mean by that, I, I don't mean the CTLA-4 inhibitors. I mean the PD-1, PDL one inhibitor. Th does that confer any benefits? Some people would say yes, others would say no. So hopefully contact three, which also include non-clear cell patient and include papillary and unclassified patient. Hopefully that study just open will be able to answer that. So somebody uh, whose tumor progress on nivolumab, ipilimumab, or pembrolizumab, excitinib, or they get sunitinib, then nivolumab, and there's a progression, uh, they would be randomized to cabozantinib versus the combination of cabozantinib and atezolizumab. 
And that study is now uh, uh, just opened and uh, accruing at some centers. I mean, that's a question really for both of you, and then we'll conclude. But what do you do right now in the post-IO in kidney cancer off-clinical trial? I mean, Rana, what do you do when you don't have a clinical trial in the post-IO? Because it seems like it's an unmet need, but until we have an answer, what do you do? Very good question, because I think all of the trials that we have to inform second-line treatment are all conducted in the VEGF-targeted era, where we use VEGF targeted therapies up front. So, you know, contact free is really a landmark trial that's going to help shape the field. Um, I think what we do in clinical practice, I think it depends on a lot of patient specific factors. You know, what did they have primary progression on IO? Were they on therapy for a long time and had a response and they're now progressing? Where are they progressing? In the brain, in the liver, in the bones? And I think, um, you know, depending on those factors, kind of uh, deciding what's the next go-to agent, you know, whether it be cabozantinib, whether it be excitinib, whether it be lembatinib plus everlimus, I think these are all tools that are at our disposal. Um, you know, whether you think about uh, challenging with um, an IO post-IO, you know, there's been some data regarding uh, that from the omnivore trial, Triton trial, or Titan trial. So I, I think there are uh, different strategies that it can be employed, but I think it's a lot of it is, you know, what are the patient factors coming in um, when they're, you know, getting out of first line. Um, I will say that, you know, second line therapy, second and subsequent line therapies in RCC remains an unmet need in the general oncologic community. Only half of patients actually ever see second line. So I think um, we need to do first line right so we can get to second line. Tony, is that about what you do as well? Any additional comments on the, what you do off clinical trials? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, it's very hard to say. And, I, you know, we, we, in the past, I have not done IO after IO, not at all. Um, because especially these, especially patient tumor progress on prior IO, to give them another IO similar. And, uh, you know, these antibodies hang around in the system for a long time. One of the things I have been doing, if the patient have not received ipilimumab as a drug, I have been giving the combination of nivolumab, ipilimumab. The reason is there's a small phase two study. We also presented at ASCO that showed a 15% response rate with very good quality of responders. Now, this could all be coming from ipilimumab. We don't know that, but I think that's what I've been doing uh, mostly. Uh, hopefully, contact three will shed light into what to do. Uh, because when you combine an IO with a TKI, despite some of the very, very impressive, I would say, results, such as one of the studies with pembrolizumab lenvetinib, I think the results, you know, I, I don't know if I can say that's only the TKI that is producing these quite impressive responses over 50%. 90% tumor shrinkage. But on the other hand, it's still in non-randomized smaller studies, uh, especially when you have a TKI potent like, you know, lemvatinib, to attribute the majority of the benefit to the TKI. Um, that's why I have not really embraced 100% that we should continue this checkpoint. Uh, you know, unless it's, it's you know, pure IOIO is NEVO, and uh, IPI, and hopefully contact three, and hopefully we'll have other uh, combination that comes that are TKI versus TKI-IO, where the IO is not atezolizumab, is, is another drug that has not been received. We need a couple of randomized studies to do that. Well, this was really wonderful. I, I've learned so much from, from all of you. I, I really appreciate taking the time and being on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. I, I can't thank you enough, guys and gals. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Shadi, and all the good luck with your podcast. I'm sure it will be one of the best uh, podcasts in business, knowing you and <laughs> how you interact, okay? You're the best. Thank you.
Okay, this was really a lot of fun. I learned so much from these three phenomenal physicians and investigators. And really, probably the take-home point, honestly, aside from the science and the data, it's just, you know, the, the field has gotten more complex and you really need to understand the nuances of each particular disease, the history of each particular disease, the biology of each particular disease to really have appreciation into how these clinical trials are written and how these clinical trials are being executed. Just a lot of fun and I learned so much and uh, I'm hoping to get more of these episodes where we have several guests talking about a particular field. I really want to learn from you how uh, we're doing on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Send an email to cnabhan1968 at gmail.com or shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. I promise that I will get back to you and I will address any concerns you may have. Again, also please rate, subscribe, and refer colleagues or friends to this podcast. And without further ado, I'm going to actually finish with Winston Churchill, you have enemies, good. That means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. Until next time, take care.